Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Day Beautiful podcast feed. My name is Adam. I am the founder of Day Beautiful, the website and podcast where you can discover debut authors. If you like what you hear here, check out Day Beautiful on daybeautiful.net and on all social media at Day Beautiful. And welcome to yet another First Taste reading series where I invite an author to read five minutes from their work to kickstart your week off with great literature and put you in a really good mood. Today's guest has had her stories, essays, and reviews appear in Georgia Review, Literary Hub, Joyland Magazine, Prairie Schooner, Harvard Review Online, and more. She has an MFA in creative writing from the University of Mississippi and a PhD in English and creative writing from Ohio University. She currently lives in New Orleans, Louisiana. Her debut, Daughters of the New Year, is out now. Please welcome E.M. Tran. Hey, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm really excited to be here. I actually followed Day Beautiful and have for a while, and I'm like so excited to be invited to your podcast. So thanks for having me. Of course. Yeah. It's funny. I, I'm um, going back and because I've expanded what I do with Day Beautiful with this first taste reading series, I'm able to talk to more authors um, because I just can't like interview every single person I want to interview, but having them read and share their yeah. work is really exciting for me. Um, your book came out last October, October 2022, Daughters of the New Year. Um, congratulations on on that. Um, tell readers a little bit about what the book's about. Yeah, so Daughters of the New Year is about a mother, Swan, and her three daughters, Ni, Track, and Chu. Um, and she, Swan, is a refugee from Vietnam, and they're uh, a first-generation Vietnamese-American family in New Orleans. Um, and you really just follow them as they um, try to be a family in in America. Um, and Swan, you know, is dealing with a lot um, as an immigrant and as someone who's experienced a lot of war and trauma. And so as you go through the book, the narrative moves backwards in time and you shift perspectives. So you you see Swan, you see Ni Chu and Track and and you and you go backwards and you kind of uncover these family secrets. Um, these family traumas, um, and just like the little moments of growing up as a first-generation person in the U.S. Um, And the farther you go back, uh, the more you uncover, and eventually you get to Vietnam, uh, and you meet the grandmothers, and the great-grandmothers, and the great-great-grandmothers, and you, you know, you go really far back, and we see rubber plantations, and, um, you know, high society balls in Vietnam until eventually you meet these uh, women warriors who originally inspired um, the novel. Uh, They're Lady True and the Trung sisters. Yeah. What I loved about it when I read it, oh man, it had to be like last summer, I guess at this point. Um, I love multi-generational stories, but how you do it is like weaving together all these different, like, I mean, obviously the different generations, but it felt like, I could tell how each generation was influenced by the past, which is like usually what's missing for me in multi-generational stories. It's like, oh, here's just three different timelines. And it's like, sure, but (laughs) cool. Um, But what part of this story will you be reading for us today? Yeah, so I'm going to be reading um, from the beginning of the book. Um, It begins 
well, actually, for it begins with the prologue from Swan, but then the actual first chapter is from the perspective of Nhi, and she is the middle child. Mm-hmm. Um, and she is on a reality television show called Eligible Bachelor, which is basically a ripoff of um, the Bachelor franchise. I don't know if anyone watches out there, but I do um, <laughs> for research. Of course. And um so it's just, you know, a little beginning snippet. She is on these reality shows. They they travel usually to different places. Um, and so it happens that on this reality show, Ni and the the women of Eligible Bachelor have traveled to Vietnam. When she got back to the hotel suite later, the other girls had already drunk eight of the 12 bottles of wine provided by the producers. They'll get us more if we ask, said the professional dog walker. No point in rationing. The cameraman hovered behind the couch and near the curtained window. They never ceased filming in the sleeping quarters because that was where all the disagreements occurred, where the girls felt most cooped up, irritable, and lonely. The place where they had time to overthink about Ben, about their families, about the jobs they'd left to be here. It was an intense two or three month filming spree and they didn't get paid, but the exposure was worth it. And if they got eliminated, they had the chance to be invited to one of the show's spinoffs. At least two assistant producers were always there sitting in the corner of the suite with their headsets on, bored and ambivalent, directing the cameramen and pulling girls aside for individual interview footage. Where have you been? Said the visual artist. Nhi had learned the visual artist was actually a hairstylist, but the way she described it, it was more of a side gig. My main job is being an artist, she'd said. I specialize in abstract art and acrylic paints. This was hilarious to Nhi at first, and it definitely still retained its comedic appeal. But the visual artist had smuggled in a traveling watercolor set, and she sketched and painted sometimes at the dining table. She was actually a good artist. They had the peculiar relationship, as all the women had with each other, of being amiable friends who sometimes chatted about their favorite hobbies one moment, and the next they turned into hostile competitors who had no problem launching the most personal attacks. Sightseeing, said Nhi. Eye rolls rippled around the room. They all thought she was trying to create her own storyline on the show, trying to stand out from the crowd. She didn't bother explaining that it really had been an accident, a spontaneous decision born of her desire to get away. Well, I'm glad to see you made it back all right, said the taxidermist. There were snickers. You were gone for a long time. You know we're not allowed to leave, right? I was trying to get away from everyone here, said Nhi. She had to stand up for herself, even if she didn't like to, even if the others misinterpreted her actions as snobbishness. Lashing out made everything worse, but she felt unsettled that day, more reactionary. The little girl, the ghost, was nowhere to be seen at the spot by the river, and when she had put her hand in her purse, crisp bills brushed against her skin once again. Well, said the taxidermist, aren't we feeling cranky? We're all here for Ben, said the entrepreneur from Dallas. Me felt the tension frizzle again. What would Ben think if he knew you were leaving? If you can't handle it, then I don't know what to tell you. This is serious, and Ben is here to find his wife. There was a purr of agreement. Ni hated the entrepreneur from Dallas, a genuinely dull woman who had started a line of hair ties that supposedly didn't stretch out after multiple uses. 
The former ballerina had pointed out that they were simply scrunchies, which had been the source of a huge house conflict, resulting in the former ballerina's elimination from the show. I'm here for Ben too, said Yi. This wasn't at all true, nor was it true for most of the other women, who were all really models, actors, musicians, or various other occupations in the entertainment industry. But there was an unspoken agreement that this charade was indispensable, that they had to keep up the ruse for their own benefit, or else all this had been a waste of time. A larger audience for their social media accounts, more opportunities for sponsorships, a greater chance at being cast for other shows. At least that was how it had started. They weren't allowed to use their cell phones or bring books. They weren't allowed to watch television or use the internet either. The producers plied them with alcohol and forced them into small quarters together. But Nhi began to suspect that the charade was no longer a charade for most of them, that somehow the show had become reality. It was why Nhi could barely stand to be in the room with everyone these past two weeks. Even so, she too felt the disconcerting nerves, the butterflies in her stomach when she saw or spoke to Ben, a man to whom she normally would never be attracted. It was like Stockholm Syndrome, a captive to the well-oiled machine of eligible bachelor, and she could feel it happening, but was powerless to stop it. She was afraid that it might become real for her too, out of pure circumstance and inevitability. She knew her mother would have something infuriating to say about it all, probably attributing her difficulties with the other women to unlucky star positions for tigers, or an inhospitable year for anyone born in the element of fire. She imagined her mother flipping through her astrology book, searching for Ben's birth chart, and clucking unhappily, conveniently interpreting their signs as incompatible. Ni was an aspiring actress and had lived in Los Angeles for the past 10 years, but for every contestant living in LA, the information bar on the screen instead said their hometown to make the cast appear like a collection of America's sweethearts rather than another Los Angeles casting call. For every model, of which there were at least 16 in the original batch of 25 girls, an alternate occupation was used. The show producers wanted to cap the cast to appear more diverse. They'd asked me if she cared if they used Vietnamese food critic as her occupation, because in the co contestant questionnaire, she'd said pho, along with pumpkin ravioli, seafood paella, and fried chicken, was one of her favorite meals, and because she'd written a few posts for a now-failed food blog. Nhi wasn't sure why, but she told them it was fine, even though it wasn't. One thing about me is, well, first of all, thank you for reading. Um, it, that, that just reminded me of like just how giddy I was when I first read it because I love reality television. It's not even a dirty secret. I think I used to be ashamed of it, but I really do. I, I think reality TV is so great. Um, how did that come a, a part of the whole collection or not collection, the whole story for you? Like was how, yeah. How did reality TV just come into this part of the story? Yeah, I also, I mean, I think clearly love reality mm -hmm. television. <laughs> um, I, you know, part of it was just as a banal answer as like, I wanted to write about reality television because <laughs> yeah. I love it. Yeah. Um, so I made a storyline where there was a character in a reality show. Um, but the other thing is like, I was really interested in spec like public spectacles and mm -hmm. the way that women are expected to perform in 
these different public spectacles. And so there's the reality show that the book starts off with. Um, but there's also, you know, beauty pageants that are involved in the narrative. Um, mm-hmm. There's a game show that Swan, the mom, ends up taking part in. Um, and so, you know, that's the public spectacle, you know, on a really big level. But on the per- interpersonal level, I think that the characters are always kind of performing some character that maybe isn't true to themselves. They're always kind of, you know, depending on what space you're in. And I think that's true for many people, right? Like there's versions of you that you perform um, on a reality show versus, you know, in your home with your parents or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I was really, really interested in that. And I just, I think that reality shows are just amazing spaces that are rife with conflict and um, such interesting people. Like imagine what you, what kind of person you have to be like to sign up to do something like The Bachelor. I mean, you just have to be like a crazy person, basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah so, yeah. So I was, I, I wanted to write about that. And I was really interested in in that kind of, you know, specifically as it relates to what it means to be a woman in mm-hmm. the U.S. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask about the idea of like the public spectacle and like the being in different modes, you know, you, you said as a woman in the U.S., but also these characters are, you know, uh, immigrants of the U.S., non, non-white mm-hmm. men uh, in the U.S. Yeah. Do you f- I mean, and then I, I kind of, I want to tr- like ask more about like you as a writer. Do you feel like you get those like subtle or non-subtle cues from the outside of you having to jump into different modes as a non-white male writer? Yeah, I mean, you know, I definitely, so you're right. It's not just, it is about being a woman in the U.S., mm-hmm. but specifically being an Asian woman yes. in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And I think that especially with like all of the anti-Asian violence that's happened mm-hmm. in the past like three years, it's been really at the top of my mind. Like, what does it mean to move through a space as an Asian woman, right? And like, what is the violence against an, like Asian women really communicating? It's it's communicating like you're in this space when I don't want you to be in the space or you're not conforming to my idea of what America should look like. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's not always that extreme. It's not always like people getting stabbed in the street, but there's that, there's that strain that leads to that. And so I was interested in explore, exploring that strain, like what attitudes or motivations of, uh, you know, people around you or of um, situations could lead to that kind of violence. And so I think it's when, you know, as an Asian woman, you're constantly kind of finding ways to be less obtrusive or, um, you know, more palatable to, especially on a reality show, to a public viewing audience Um, or conforming to like the expectations of the audience at all, right? Like what, what is what is this woman of color going to do? Is she a villain or is she, Mm -hmm. you know, is she the exotic object that this this man desires right so I was really interested in that but like personally as um just like as a person in the world like I think I haven't I mean there's kind of an anxiety that I've always had which is in some ways irrational but also like definitely rooted in experience like that there's not going to be enough space for my story Mm -hmm. um like that there's like a quota of of Vietnamese American writers that you can have at a certain given time. Right. (laughs) And of course, like there, uh, that comes from a place of like deep, deep 
insecurity about you know, white supremacy and like, you know, there being, you can only be the token, right? You can only be the one in whatever white space there is. And, and publishing is very white. So I definitely have that, have had and currently still am dealing with that anxiety. But, you know, the month that my book came out, two other Vietnamese American women had their books come out. Um, Tracy Lian uh, and um, Caroline Huynh had their books come out the same month. And mm-hmm. before they came out, I had this like intense anxiety, like, oh my gosh, like, is anyone going to buy our books? Like they're all coming up at the same time. Um, but then when the books came out, everything was fine. And I was like, everyone can have their books come out. It's totally okay. And that may not have been true in the past, but it's true now because we're making, we're forcing the reality to exist. So in that sense, I, you know, I'm always kind of dealing with that reality as an Asian mm-hmm. woman in publishing. Um, and I don't think that that feeling will probably ever go away just because of the way that I've been conditioned and have and the experiences that I've had. But it is, you know, something that probably white male writers don't think about when they're publishing their work. I can almost guarantee that they don't think about that <laughs> um, based on the people I've talked. I mean, it's, and it's not like, I'm not knocking white male authors, of course. Um, but it's just, yeah, it's things have been handed to us uh, societally on a silver platter platter for ever, you know, yeah. like, um, <laughs> But this conversation is going longer than I probably intended. But now I want to ask you just about reality television because I love it. Um, And we're kind of already talking about it. Um, I don't watch The Bachelor per se, but I know enough about what's been going on in the past years. Have you seen like a shift? So just for listeners who are curious, like a few years ago, the host of The Bachelor said some racially insensitive comments. I don't know what he said, so I can't like comment on it particularly and now like they're trying to shift away they shifted away from him and now they have two women co-hosts both i believe are women of color maybe not i again i don't watch the bachelor How, do you feel like reality tv or maybe even the bachelor since then has a, is doing enough i guess is doing yeah. enough to answer for 20 years of not white supremacy on reality tv but whiteness right. but yeah. kind of yeah kind of yeah yeah <laughs> yeah um it's yes so there was a lot of drama and Mm -hmm. it it was very very it's very interesting to watch because um there is the sense that the the machine the franchise the bachelor knows that there's a shift in public opinion and and public attitudes about diversity and inclusion and um you know representation on screen um and but it's like they're aware of it but it's it's not necessarily a genuine feeling like we have to do this in order to make the show more equitable. It's more like, what do we have to perform in order to make this acceptable to a viewing audience Mm -hmm. or to public perception? Um, And I think that that's like, I mean, we see this all the time because we live in a capitalist society, right? Where it's like, it's kind of like when companies are like, we're, we have a green option. You can Mm -hmm. buy these clean this clean soap this clear soap doesn't have any dyes in it but we still also offer the thing that has the dyes in it but you can buy the green option if you want to yeah um and it's this idea that like what do i need to do in order to like conform to what the market wants like Mm -hmm. the idea that diversity equity and inclusion is about appealing to a market you can definitely sense that in their programming and, and their choices um And not to say that like, it's 
bad that they like they should have to do that and if the only way to get them to do that is through like the market (laughs) (laughs) then they should do that but it's also like we should be aware as a viewer or as just like a person in the world who's consuming media like that it's this is how it works right Mm -hmm. things don't change unless you make us think about it and when they do change it's always motivated by money um and so i mean i don't you know like this is the with my book like i was just thinking like there are so many things that there are so many things that happen to the characters that are upsetting or that are dehumanizing and all of it really goes back to the fact that like they're not considered people in a society that doesn't monetarily value the way that they look or where they're from. Um, so I don't, you know, you probably wouldn't like see that on the surface, but that was, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was my motivation in writing it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I find it interesting just with reality TV. So my, my, my reality show is survivor. Um, yes. And oh. now um, since like in the past three seasons, they've had like a diversity clause i guess where what? yeah it's like 50 percent of the cast is now non like non-white um is a oh, person of color and to me as like great like i love to see diversity i mean if you look at the books day beautiful covers like i like right. to live lives i haven't lived mm-hmm. and uh but part of me is like is, like yeah i know this is performative and, and you saying it's because of the market right but right. it's like you know you know, I'm not one to comment on it because it's like not affecting me, but, and and, and now I do enjoy seeing on Twitter or on Reddit, like uh, fans of color, you know, Asian fans, Hispanic fans, uh, or Latinx fans, uh, et cetera, are seeing themselves represented, but it's like, I'm always just curious, like, is it forced? Is it performative? Even if it is, that's okay. Or is it not? I don't know. You know? Yeah. No, I mean, I think that the book industry is a really, really great example of that. It's like, what is motivating the publishers to purchase certain books? And it's because they want to sell the books, right? It's not a, anything to do with some kind of charity or anything like that. It's that they want to make money. And while that is, um, I mean, the outcome is great because I want there to be more diverse books. But at the same time, I'm still going to be mistrustful about the motivations behind what kind of books are are being sold to me, what versions of Asian American experience or black experience or whatever are being presented to me? Are they all, uh, you know, told through a certain lens? Are mm-hmm. they, you know, is it that they think that they can market it to an idea or this kind of monolith of black experience or Asian experience? Um, so I'm always going to be skeptical about it, but at the same time, I also understand that that is the only motivator and that's the only way that you can affect change in a system in which money Mm -hmm. is king right yeah yeah i didn't mean to diverge this or to make this conversation go so deep into like race (laughs) and the market but it it is interesting man i'm glad that we ended up talking on a day where you know again we're recording this on a on martin luther king it's a government holiday and i have time to talk and it's just an interesting holiday to talk about it um yeah and, and and i guess like i was just thinking do you have you seen a lot of like asian american author their books like i'm trying to think like most of them i think are still like immigrant stories mm-hmm. i i could be obviously wrong about that but have you seen like uh, that that's the case am i am i just way off base are there like I, i'm you trying know, to think like celeste ing 
race obviously comes into play with like um, mm-hmm. Little Fires Everywhere it just takes place in Cleveland. It's just a yeah. book about it's a book about art yeah. and other things. But I'm trying to think like a lot of my favorite books. Uh, that's not true. I'm just rambling. I'm going to stop talking. What do you no, think? No, no, no. I think, well, so Celeste Ng's um, Everything I Never Told You. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've read that one. That one is actually, about. Yeah, I prefer that one to that? Little Fires Everywhere, yeah. actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the first one I read and yes. I loved it so much. Um, mm-hmm. But that one is about uh, being an immigrant yeah. um, and a mixed race family. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say, actually, I feel like there's more of, like, less about being an immigrant and mm-hmm. more just being, like, an Asian person in the yeah. U.S. You just yeah. have to be Asian. I think that there's actually, like, a lot of YA that yeah, cool. is about that, which is really, really exciting because when I was a kid, like, there was literally no books about – I mean, there probably were books. I just didn't have access to them. They just weren't, you know, in my purview. So, like, they – you know, I didn't read any Asian American narratives until I got to college and it was like mm. the Joy Luck Club. And mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I love that book so much and was inspired by it a lot in writing my own book. But like, that is very much what you would view as like the classic um, Asian yeah. narrative of the immigrant that comes to the U.S. and lives in this kind of cloistered community and et cetera, et cetera. But um, I didn't realize that there were so, there's so much YA all yeah. the time. Um, and I realized that actually from watching the from watching the Netflix movie, uh, All the Boys I yeah. Loved Before. Mm-hmm. And when I watched that movie, I was like, oh, my God, like this this movie is incredible because it's just she's just Asian yeah, and she just yeah. she just likes boys. And it's not that you've erased her Asian identity. It's just that it's not like the center of mm-hmm. the entire story. The center of the story is like that she has a crush on a boy mm-hmm, and that mm-hmm. you're trying to work through that. And um, Jenny Han, I think writes a lot about that. And I think that there's also probably a lot of YA books that, that go through that. And I think that's great because when you're a kid, you don't, you don't want to be like, I'm an Asian kid, right? Mm-hmm. Like you just want to be a kid. And so it's really, really exciting to still see yourself represented probably and read narratives about what it might be like to be you, but not necessarily about, you know, the systemic racism that you're facing when you leave Chinatown for the first time, right? <laughs> Thank you so much to E.M. Tran for joining the Day Beautiful First Taste reading series. Uh, we went a little longer than expected, but I hope you enjoy the conversation. You can find her at elizabethmtran.com, at etran3 on Twitter, and emtran3 on Instagram. You can find Day Beautiful at daybeautiful.net and on all social media at Day Beautiful. As always, I'm Adam. This is Day Beautiful, and you're all beautiful. Beautiful.